You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. So Luke chapter 2, that's where you need to be. It's going to take us a minute to get there. So just hang tight there in Luke chapter 2. Um, let me start here. Um, Stonegate, I don't know if you know this, but uh, America has voted. And if the internet can be trusted, which there's a big question in that, but if the internet can be trusted, uh, America's favorite holiday, I feel like there needs to be a drum roll right there, America's favorite holiday is, what do you think? Christmas. Christmas is America's favorite holiday. Man, I'm all in on that. I love Christmas. Uh, You probably love Christmas too. Now, it's interesting uh, when you kind of push into that that, um, area of why is it the favorite holiday? Like, why is it that all of us, most of us, uh, kind of consider Christmas like that holiday of the year that we really like? Why is that? And if you want to boil it down, America's reason for Christmas being their favorite holiday is the sentimentality of the season. It is a sentimental season. Listen to one person describe it. Here's why it's my favorite holiday. It's my favorite holiday because I love the atmosphere and the feelings Christmas brings. It's such a beautiful holiday with lights and trees. I love the craziness of Christmas. I love shopping and gift buying. Who is that and why do they like that? I love shopping and gift buying. I love wrapping presents and being uh, together with family. I've always felt that around this time of year, everyone becomes a little nicer as the warmth of all the beautiful holiday decorations softens their hearts and reminds them of times spent with friends and family. There it is, the sentimentality of the season. There's just something about eggnog, presents, Christmas tree lights, the nativity scene that just makes Christmas such a likable season of the year. Now, the only problem with that sentimentality sort of view of Christmas, the only problem with that is the Bible. That's just not the way the Bible views Advent. It's not the way the Bible views Christmas. That is not the Bible's perspective of of Christmas. Sentimentality is a far cry from how the scriptures present Christmas to us. That The Bible brings us to Christmas not with sentimentality, but with brutal realism. Now think about this in the book of Isaiah. Uh, In Isaiah chapter 9, the prophet Isaiah is announcing, he is predicting the coming of Jesus in Isaiah chapter 9. But do you remember the the precursor to the prediction? That the precursor to the prediction in Isaiah chapter 9 is the people were living in darkness. Like darkness is kind of the precursor to the whole thing. It's what lies in the backdrop of the nativity. The backdrop of Christmas isn't a Hallmark card. That the backdrop of Christmas is human hopelessness. That that's what lies behind the nativity is human hopelessness. Uh, from the Bible's perspective, Christmas or Advent doesn't fit very well on a Hallmark card. It just doesn't, that the message of Christmas just doesn't fit there very well. And here's the reason. It's because Advent actually starts in the dark. That's where it starts. That the story of Advent that the message of Advent starts in the dark. The biblical backdrop for Christmas is not sentimentality. It's not eggnog. It's not presence. The, the, the backdrop is utter dark, a darkness. A- Advent starts with the world living under a curse. I, I see if you, you know, are familiar, familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, Advent starts, in C.S. Lewis's wor- uh, words, in a world that's always winter but never Christmas. That's the backdrop 
to Advent. That's the backdrop to Christmas. It's a world, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, a world that really has been subjected to futility. Now think about the storyline of the Bible, just to, to begin to unwrap that, the darkness that lies in the background of Christmas. Think about the storyline of the Bible. God creates our first parents, Adam and Eve, and he puts them in a beautiful garden. And in that garden, everything is perfect. The Hebrews had this word to describe that. It was the word shalom. Everything in life was as it should be. Everything was working the way it was supposed to, to be. That The world wasn't broken. Every, everything, just imagine everything in the world like not dissolving into craziness and chaos, but everything being perfect. That's Genesis 1 and 2. And if you know the storyline of the Bible, there's over 1,100 chapters in the Bible, and that lasts for all of two of those chapters. Two chapters do you get shalom, everything working as it should be. In Genesis chapter 3, our first parents rebelled against God by eating the forbidden fruit. And with that sin, the curse set into the world, and this unstoppable evil was unleashed. By the time you get to the end of Genesis chapter 3, our first parents were pushed out of the garden, out to the east of Eden. And east of Eden, life is less hallmarkish, and life is much more hellish. That's life east of Eden. East of Eden, life is full of frustration, loss, suffering, death, addiction, evil, injustice. If you just start reading from Genesis chapter 4 forward, what you find is sin, suffering, and evil stains every page of the scriptures. So Genesis chapter 4, verse 8. This is one chapter after that the curse sets in on the world. Genesis chapter 4, verse 8, two brothers are out in the field. Cain spoke to his brother Abel, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. That, that, is, that is one chapter after winter has settled over the world. One chapter. By the time you get to chapter 6, just three chapters later, Evil, like this unstoppable force that it is, has infiltrated God's good world to the point where God says this about his world. Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. The, uh, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. I mean, God just takes a step back. This is three chapters after sin settles over the world, after the curse settles over the world, after the world was subjected to futility, three chapters later, God steps back and he's like, this is my diagnosis of, of kind of the problem right now. When man thinks every inclination of his heart is evil all the time. God goes on in Genesis chapter 6 to say, the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. One of the things that I really appreciate about the Bible is that it doesn't force us to bury our heads in the sand and pretend like the world is better than it is. The Bible doesn't make you do that. I love that about the Bible. Uh, rather than doing that, the Bible actually grabs our head, lifts it up out of the, the sand, out of the denial that we would kind of like to, to, to think about the world in. Like it's actually a really good place out there. It lifts our head out of the sand and, and, it, and it points it points our eyes into the evil that is and gives us a realistic picture of the world. I, when you just read the Bible, you can't, you can't avoid that the Bible is painting a picture of a dark world. I love how one theologian puts it, just summarizing the, the Bible doing this for us. It says, when you read the Bible, here's what you're going to find. 
Evil is everywhere present in the world of the Bible. You can't turn to a page in the scriptures and fail to see that the world is under a curse, that winter really has settled over the world, that there is a long, dark shadow of sin and suffering and evil that has stretched itself across the world. Evil is everywhere present in the world of the Bible. So if you just keep reading from Genesis chapter 6, here's what you find. War, murder, famine, slavery, genocide, greed, incest, abuse, betrayal, loss, lying, devastation, rebellion, anarchy, and you can just keep the words going. This is what you find. In the book of Judges, you remember what, the, what God says about in the book of Judges? He looks at the world, and here's his pronouncement upon the world. Here, here's, here's how he says the world is living. Everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. And if you know kind of the the biblical commentary on that in the book of Judges, here's what God is actually saying. Everyone is doing right in their own eyes, and they can't even see that it's dead wrong. This is how crazy and messed up and twisted and distorted that the world has become. This is, this is the dark backdrop behind the Advent season. In the Bible, and I love this about the Bible. The Bible, in this sort of bone-shattering way, rips through the sentimentality of the season and rather than offering us um, a sentimental view of Christmas, it offers us sobriety. This is what the Bible is doing. It's showing us the world as it is. It's showing us a world where there is this inescapable shadow of Genesis chapter 3. This long, dark shadow of evil and suffering and sin that has polluted God's good world. That is... That is what the Bible is showing us. When we come to the Advent season, every December when Christmas rolls around, the Bible is, is bringing this invitation from God. And it's a painful invitation. It's an invitation that actually takes courage to receive from God. It's an invitation like that, but it's, it's an invitation from God to stare into the darkness and to consider it. That's what Advent does. It brings us into the darkness. It holds our face in front of it and says, will you take a long stare at that? Would you consider the darkness that is? And here's why that's so important for us. Fleming Rutledge, in her book on uh, Advent, she says this, the meaning of Christmas is diminished to the vanishing point to the, like, it loses all meaning. The, the meaning of Christmas disappears. The meaning of Christmas is diminished to the vanishing point if we are not willing to take a fearless inventory of the darkness. Now hear that. If we are unwilling to stare into the darkness that is and take a good inventory of that darkness, we don't even have a framework to receive the good news of Advent. Advent, every December, is an invitation from God to stare into the darkness and to consider the world that is. To consider that we live in a world where a pastor friend of mine was mowing his lawn and happened to look up just in time to watch a truck back into his neighbor's driveway. All the while, the driver was unaware that his neighbor's 18-month-old son was behind a tire. A world like that. Advent ask us. It's an invitation from God to consider that, that we live in a world where a brain tumor right now is slowly ripping through the body of a friend of mine, just stripping him of, of essentially every bodily function. And if you could just rewind the, the clock a couple of years ago, you would see a vibrant human being, a, a world like that. 
That, that's the world that is. It's a world where a, a little eight-year-old girl was violated and abused for years by her stepdad, and now in her 40s, she still has not, nightmares. It's a world where Samuel Little, convicted three years ago of, of murder, now claims he's been involved in the murder of over 90 people between 1970 and 2013. It's a world where that is. It's a world where a man broke into the house of a, a young girl named Jennifer Thompson several decades ago, held her at knife point, and violated her in unspeakable ways. The police tracked down some suspects. They put them in a lineup. She looks at the lineup and says, that is the man. That, that guy right, near is, right there, his name was Ronald Cotton. Right there, that is the guy who did it. I'm 100% sure that's the man. He's sentenced then to life in prison. She goes on to marry. She has triplets. Her life is going along okay. And 11 years later, the unthinkable happens. A police detective shows up at her door and says, DNA evidence has proved that Ronald Cotton is not the guy. The guy that you said did it, it was not the guy that, that did it. Rather, it was the other guy that we nabbed, the other suspect that we put in the lineup that, that you didn't pick out. His name was Bobby Poole. It was, it was him that actually did it. Now, isn't that an interesting thing? Even when we try to stop the unstoppable evil that it is, oftentimes we just keep the evil going. We keep the pollution going. This is, this is the world that is. East of Eden, we find evil and suffering of every kind. About a year ago, I just like drug out of the headlines for that given week, about, about a year ago, and just took the headlines that were that week. And, and here was the headlines of just that week, a few of them. Life sentence for killer who strangled ex and four-year-old son. Alleged lewd ex-cop accused of flashing three more. Heartless cop killer sentenced to life in prison without parole. Man locked up for 30 years on wrongful charges. Magnitude 5.8 earthquake strikes Iran. Judge sentences two men in beheading plot to 15 years. Virginia woman mauled to death by her dogs. I mean, this is, it's just the world it is. We, we live in a world that's, that's under the curse. We inhabit a world where it's always winter and never Christmas. And Advent encourages us to, to get our heads out of the sand, to resist denial, and to take a good long look at the darkness that is. Like this, this is what Advent is inviting you to do and, and, and me to do. You know, and it's interesting just to think about how our lives generally work. Generally, we start life off with rose-colored glasses. If, if you were raised in a family that was protective of you and, and, and trying to keep some of that darkness at bay, you probably, were, you probably grew up in a world where you, you felt somewhat safe. Like you looked at the world and thought, this is a safe place, this is a good place out here. And, and then something happens at some point along our lives that makes us realize the world's actually a really dark place. It actually isn't that, that safe of a place. And, and it's interesting, this last week, I just made a point to ask people, when did that happen for you? Like, when did you go from, like, the rose-colored glasses of everything's good, the world's an awesome place, to, wow, there is a lot of darkness here. And, and that is as varied as there are people in the room. Uh, for some, that happened at, in the middle of our childhood when something happened there that just in a soul-shaking way rattled us, and we became aware of this world is dark. Uh, for some, it was 9-11, watching people fly planes into the World Trade Center, bent on terrorizing and killing people. Uh, for some in the younger generation, it's going to be ISIS. 
as they watched a group of people behead other people, video it, spread it on the internet for the terror of other people. For some, that's going to be the marker for them, but it's as varied as, as there are human stories. But the thing about Advent is it doesn't just call us to look at the darkness that's out there. It also calls us to look at the darkness that's in here, like in your soul and in my soul. Listen to the way Jesus talks about evil and the problem of the world. In Mark chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, listen to what he says. For from within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things are polluting God's good creation. All these things that are evil and terrible. Listen to Jesus' statement about that. He says, all of these evil things come from not without. It's not the problem that's out there. He says, all these things come from within and they defile a person. Like when Jesus is addressing the problem of the world, he's not looking out there and saying, hey, you see that thing and that thing and that thing. No, he says, point the finger inside and look at, take a deep, dark look at your own heart because what you're going to find there is a lot of evil too. Like the darkness is not just an out there problem, it's an in here problem. You know, I, I think it's so easy for us to take like this really simplistic view of the world that says something like this. Let's just divide the whole world up into the good people and the bad people. They're the good people, they're on that side of the line, and here are the bad people, and they're on that side of the line. And the problem is the Bible just really won't let us do that. Like east of Eden, winter, like sinfulness, evil, the, the winter that is, the curse that is, the winter didn't just spread out into the world. The problem is we all took a big breath of that cold winter air and we breathed it in and it came into us too. We're all a part of the problem that is. We're all a part of the evil that is. This week, I, 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 I sat down for a while and I asked myself a question and honestly, I hated to ask it. It wasn't fun to ask, wasn't comfortable to ask, but here's the question. I just sat before the Lord and I asked him the question, God, would you, would, you just, would you bring to my mind any ways that I have been a participant in unleashed evil? God, would you just help me see? I don't want to be naive to that. I, I don't want that simplistic, here are the goods, here are the bads. No, God, I, I want to I know how I've done that. And, and the first thought that the Lord just brought to mind was back in my teenage years in a moment where I took from another human being with just no regard for what it cost them. It's hard for me to even imagine in that moment the sort of damage it's doing to a human soul. And and even now, this week, thinking about that, it just brings all sorts of, uh, I, I think, biblical shame. Like, just that is so demeaning and degrading and terrible and damaging to another human being. That, that is me taking God's good world and polluting it. And, and who in here can raise their hand and say, you know what, I'm innocent of that. It's all of you that have been doing that, but I haven't, I haven't, I haven't participated in any of that. There, there's, there's nothing in my life that has ever polluted God's good creation. That's, that's their problem out there. That's not my problem. Who in here can say that? The Bible's answer is no one can say that. 
because we're all complicit in the evil that is. That unleashed evil that is in the world is not just a their problem out there, that's an our problem in here. I, I recently, and don't judge me for this, um, I, I'm not even sure I was a Christian when I did it, but I recently watched, rewatched No Country for Old Men. I don't know how many of you have seen that movie. It is not for the faint of heart. Let me preface that. It is not for the faint of heart. It is a, it is a really dark movie. And in a lot of ways, what, what I think the movie is doing is, is grabbing our face and, and pointing our face into the darkness and for two hours making us consider the darkness that is. It is difficult. It is terrible. It is, it is all of those things. In a lot of ways, it is uh, human depravity on display. It is showing us the human predicament. It is showing us human hopelessness. It is showing us a picture of unleashed evil. That's what, that's what the movie is doing. That's what the original book was doing. It's, it's exploring that. This is, this is human beings left to themselves. This is judges. This is when human beings just do what's right in their own eyes. This is what it looks like. A couple of days after that, I was talking to my son, Caleb, about that movie, and I was just kind of walking him, kind of a 30,000-foot view through the storyline of, of the movie, and I was talking about the antagonist in the movie. His name is Anton Chigurh, and in a lot of ways, he is the personification of unstoppable evil. That's, that's what he is in the movie. And uh, Shigur has, he has this totally like seared conscience. He doesn't feel anything. He just does and doesn't feel. And, and one of just the... the craziest sort of weird scenes in the movie, he pulls up at this convenience store. This is just giving you a, a, a snapshot of it. Pulls up at this convenience store and, and, and what is an awkward, massively awkward conversation, he ends up just deciding, is this, is this convenience store owner going to live or is he going to die? Am I going to kill him or am I not going to kill him? What, what am I going to do? And to make the decision, he just flips a coin. I mean, this is just the life that he's living. It's just pure unleashed evil f- for two hours. And when you're watching the movie, you, you see behind this man as he's just mowing down people and places with this trail of devastation and suffering and, and death that follows him. And the, the movie is really meant to make you ask a question. It's meant to make you ask the question, is this really what the world is like? Is the world really like that? And the Bible's answer is yes. That is, that is a, a right picture of what the world is like. That is unstoppable evil unleashed, casting its long shadow over the world. In this one moment, I went on to tell Caleb about this one moment where Woody Harrelson, his character, he is kind of brought in to be the guy who's going to stop the unstoppable evil. He's that guy in the movie. And by the way, he's going to do it in his own evil way. So in stopping the unstoppable evil, he's going to introduce a lot more evil into it. And he, but but he's, he's the guy that's built to kind of be the stopper. He's going, to, he's going to stop this guy. And do you know how long he lasts in the movie? About three minutes. About three minutes. And when I said that, Caleb looked back at me and he said, uh, oh, oh no, can, can anything then stop unstoppable evil? And when I heard him say that, I'm like, Caleb... That is the question of Advent. That is the exact question that Christmas is meant to produce in our soul. Advent first is meant to take our face, to show, to show our face the darkness, to, to expose our lives to the darkness that is, the curse that is. It's meant to, to expose us to human hopelessness. 
to the unstoppable evil that is this world, to give us an accurate picture of what the world is like. And when we stare into that darkness long enough, Advent is meant to bubble up out of our heart that question, can anyone stop unstoppable evil? Can anyone do that? And thankfully, Advent doesn't just make us stare into the, into the darkness. Advent then sends a shaft of light into the darkness. That, that's, that's what's behind the nativity. When you see Jesus enter the world, that is a shaft of light into the unstoppable evil that is. That, that's what's happening in Advent. Like a bright light in the dark of night, the angels announce the birth of Jesus to the shepherds like this. This is Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The angel announces Jesus' birth like this. I am bringing you good news of great joy. Uh, years ago, I heard a pastor uh, describe this moment in his early parenting years. One of his kids was about two and a half years old. It was his boy. And he hadn't heard from any of his kids for a while, in particular his two and a half year old boy. And like any parent, you know when you have a two and a half year old in your home, if you haven't heard from them in like the last three minutes, they are probably into some bad things. So he knew that. So he instantly goes in the hunt to try to find his kid. And he finds his kid, and his kid is in the kitchen. His two and a half year old boy is in the kitchen, but not just in the kitchen, up on the countertop in the kitchen. So he's standing on the countertop, feet planted, four feet above the ground. And he wasn't just on the countertop, he had one of their steak knives in his hand. But he didn't just have a steak knife in his hand, he was grabbing the steak knife by the blade. So just picture the scene. Your two and a half year old boy, just picture that, you're in his shoes. Your two and a half year old boy is on top of the counter, four feet up in the air. He's got a knife in his hand, not grabbing the knife by the handle, but the knife by the blade. And what are you going to do as a dad? You're going to do what he did. You're going to look at your boy and you're going to say, don't move a muscle. Don't move. Wait right there. I'll come and get you. That's what you would do. Now, in a very real sense, that is what's happening at Christmas. This is why it is such good news. The angel's announcement is good news because God is now entering into the wreckage of this world. That's what God's doing in Advent. He's entering into the wreckage. And, and, and we, like that two-and-a-half-year-old boy, blade in hand up on the counter, we don't have the capacity to fix the problem. The mess that we have made is beyond our capacity to clean up. So God is looking at us, and he's saying, wait right there. Don't move. What, you, you're trying to fix it. just probably going to make it worse. Wait right there. I'll come and get you. The, the announcement of Jesus' birth was good news because it announced that help has arrived. Someone has come that can stop unstoppable evil without creating more evil. Someone has come that can do that. I love how one of my friends described Advent. He's talking about this announcement in, in, in Luke chapter 2, verse 10, this announcement of a baby. And he says, this announcement reminds us that God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. I think about that. God's, God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized you. God, God's answer to the unstoppable evil that is, is a child. 
The, the ultimate answer to every evil out there and in here is a baby who would go on to live perfectly for us, 30 years later, die in our place, three days later, come back to life to make a way for both our rescue and the renewal of this broken world. Th that's what Advent is announcing. And when we see it like that, when we put the backdrop of this dark world in front of us, that good news really does become great news, doesn't it? It's so great that William Tyndale, uh, the old Bible translator, would say, it makes a man's heart glad and makes him sing and dance and leap for joy. Just, just know this, you have permission from God during the Advent season to, to, for your heart to be glad, for you to stand up, for you to sing, for you to dance, and for you to leap for joy. Because the great news of the gospel is really that great. So, so here's what I want to do as we finish. I want to I just apply this in two ways and just think about what, what are two things this should mean for our life? The, the shaft of light that God has sent down into the darkness in the birth of his son Jesus, this good news of great joy. What are, the, what are two things it should do to us? Two, and we'll be done. First of all, what, what, is, what sort of a people does this create? What, 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 sort of a, what, what sort of a family does this make, this good news of great joy? First, Christmas creates a people of hope, a people of hope. I don't know about you, but when I look at the world, I oftentimes just think, this is impossible. I guess just in the end, evil's just going to swallow up everything else. Darkness is just going to win. I mean, if you just kind of watch the news, it's easy to kind of see it like that. But, but Christmas, but Advent is the moment, and just allow Christmas to remind you of this. Advent is the moment when the impossibility of the human condition is met by the possibility of God. I love how one writer says it like that. Advent is the moment when the, when the impossibility of the human condition is met by the possibility of God. See, Christmas is the moment when we remember that because, Jesus, or because God sent his beloved son Jesus down into this world, into the wreckage that is, in the birth of Jesus, a whole new set of possibilities have been opened for us. In uh, Luke chapter 1, I love this scene when the angel comes to Mary and announces to Mary, a virgin by the way, that she is pregnant. And you know, it's funny, uh, Mary's response is like, uh, do you know how that happens? Um, do, do you know how this, this works? Because there's no way this could happen. And the angel looks back at her in Luke 1, and says, For nothing will be impossible with God. Aren't we grateful that we have a God like that? Where nothing is impossible with our God? That, that our God never comes to a problem he can't solve? He never comes to a situation he can't fix? There's plenty of impossibility with us, Right? There's plenty you can't fix. There's plenty I can't fix. But there's nothing that God can't fix. Nothing is impossible with God. God is the sort of God who can take a virgin like Mary and give her a son. God is the sort of God who can enter into human history as the man, Jesus Christ. God is the sort of God who on the third day can rise from the dead. God is the sort of God who can enter into human history and because of his life, death, and resurrection can save rebels like us, can forgive sinners like us, bring us into his family and make us friends. God is the sort of God who can stop unstoppable evil. Advent is the time of year when God reminds us that he is a God who can. Aren't you grateful that you have a God who can? You know what happens to us over time? 
the longer we live, the more likely it is that um, the possibilities that we see in life will begin to shrink down to what is possible with us. The, the possibilities shrink down to what is humanly possible. We get cynical, right? We, we, everything is viewed through such a dark lens, but Christmas is the time of year when God rips us out of that cynicism and he brings us back into childlikeness. And he, he reminds us that, that, no, we have a world that's now full of possibilities because you have a God that's, that's me. You have a God that nothing is impossible for him. You have a God who can. F followers of Jesus should be the happiest and the most hopeful people on the planet. And here's why. We have a God who can. So just take a moment to apply that to your life. Where in your life has your life shrunk down to what is humanly possible? Where is it that you're looking at your life right now and, and you talk like this? No way that's going to happen. No way that could ever happen. No, no way that could happen. Where do you talk like that? Where, where in your life has your life shrunk down to what you can see and what you can do and what you can produce and what your resources could accomplish? Where is that? Because Advent is the moment, Advent is the time of year when God is drawing us out of that cynicism and back into that childlikeness. He's reminding us that, does your marriage feel impossible? You have a God who can. Does infertility feel impossible? You have a God who can. Does the situation you find your child in feel impossible to you? Like there's just no way it's humanly possible for them to ever be redeemed out of that, for them to ever walk out of that. There's no way. Christmas is the moment of the year when God says, you serve a God who can. That that, that sickness is, is that the stranglehold is just too deep that you have a God who can. That, that addiction is too... You serve a God who can. That, that sort of change that you've been praying for for decades and you just finally thrown up your hands and said, I guess this is just kind of who I am. This is always going to be in my life. There's no way I'm ever going to have any sort of measurable freedom from this thing. You have a God who can. What would it look like for you to reopen the possibilities of your life to a God who can? See, Advent is meant to create, Christmas is meant to create a people of hope. It's also meant to create a people of waiting, a people of waiting, and we'll finish here. God's plan in sending Jesus wasn't just to rescue sons and daughters from every nation, tongue, and tribe. His plan was to renew this broken world, to stop unstoppable evil. And the Old Testament gives us these beautiful pictures of what that world's going to look like. When God finally accomplishes that, when he finally renews this broken world, when he finally puts a stop to unstoppable evil, it gives us some, some glimpses of that world. Let me just read a couple of these to you. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 25. Here's a picture of a world where unstoppable evil is stopped, where Jesus reigns and rules. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountains, says the Lord. Can you imagine a place that safe? You know what I love about life under the reign and rule of God, the renewed earth that God is going to make one day? You know what I love about that? There's going to be no need for locks on your doors. It's going to be a place that's that safe where a lion and a lamb can snuggle together and all of that goes well. Zephaniah chapter 3. Behold, at that time I will deal with all of your oppressors. 
Everyone who is oppressing will be dealt with, he says, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. And at that time, I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. You know, the longer you live in this dark, broken world, the more loss you endure. Just think about the things that you have lost in your life. For some, it's a marriage. For some, it's relationships. For some, it's kids. Just think about all the things that you've lost in this life. And God is saying, there is a day coming when I renew this broken world. And in that moment, all that you have lost will be restored forever. Forever. And then he says, look at that, just notice this. He says, and I'll change their shame into praise. Now, now notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I'll add a little praise onto their shame. That's not what he says. He says, no, I, I'm not just going to add a little praise onto their shame. I'm going to take their shame. You know, like those things that you're most embarrassed about in your life, like those things that you hope and pray nobody will ever know about in your life. Like, I'm going to take those things, not just add a little praise onto it. I'm going to take those things, like your deepest shame, and I'm going to turn those into your greatest praise. That, that's the sort of new world that God's creating. One of my favorite couple of verses in the Bible comes in Jeremiah chapter 31. Listen to this. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and of the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden. Can you imagine a life like that, like a watered garden? And they shall languish no more. No more languishing, no more despair, no more Monday mornings, amen? But it's going to be a life of flourishing, of fullness, of hope. Verse 13, then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. Not just adding some joy to their sorrow, but no, I'm going to take their deepest sorrows, their deepest losses, and I'm going to turn those sorrows into their greatest joys. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance and all of my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. This is what God's promising. He's saying there's going to be my people in my place under my rule and they will be satisfied with my goodness forever and ever and ever. That's the incredible future that God has for his people. We oftentimes sum up the good news of Jesus, that this message of good news of great joy like this, we're all idiots, we have an incredibly bright future in Jesus, and anyone can get in on this. And at the birth of Jesus, here is what the angel is announcing. That the angel is announcing God's renewing work, like the incredibly bright future that God is going to prepare for his people. Th that work is now underway. Construction has started. We have broken ground on that new world. That's what Advent reminds us of. I love how one author says it. He says, Christmas, the Advent, the birth of Jesus, it is the beachhead of God's campaign against sin and sadness, darkness and death, fear and frustration. God started the campaign 2,000 years ago in the birth of Jesus. 
And one day it's going to culminate when Jesus comes back again. And Revelation 21 and 22 happens. The new heavens and the new earth will experience the, the best of this life now without the brokenness. Light without the shadow of evil. That's what's coming. What God started 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem is not yet complete. But, but that's what's coming for God's people. So Advent reminds us that we're a people of waiting. We're a people of deep longing who cry out with the psalmist, How long, O oh Lord, how long? That is the cry of the Christian heart. Christmas is my favorite time of year, not because of eggnog, but because it reminds me the best is yet to come. I love Christmas because every time I see the shadow of evil, it reminds me that, no, 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 no. This is not, it, it, it started, but it's not yet complete. I'm still waiting. I'm still longing. It reminds me, every time we see the shadow of evil, it reminds me, it reminds us to cry out with John in the closing passage of the Bible. Come, Lord Jesus, come. That is Advent. Will you pray with me? to give you a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you anything that would be helpful and to wipe away anything that wouldn't be. The angel comes announcing good news of great joy for all people. God has entered into the wreckage. Someone who can help is now here. Someone who can rescue us from our sins. Someone who can renew this broken world. Someone who can stop unstoppable evil. He's here. And the angel reminds us that it's good news of great joy for all people that anyone can get in on this. A anyone can get in on this. If you're here today and you know you're a sinner, if you feel like you're beyond the reach of God's grace, you can get in on this. If you're here today and you're weak and needy, you can get in on this. If you're here today and you're a have or a have not, you can get in on this. If you're young or old, you can get in on this. It is good news of great joy for all people, anyone who will come to God with their need, holding up their life and saying to God, I am trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Rescue me, save me. Anyone can get in on this. And if you're not in on this, God stands today with arms wide open, ready to welcome you ready to welcome you. So, oh God, would you help us today? Would you speak to us today? God, would you create in us hope, an unshakable, sturdy hope? God, would you create in us a longing as we wait for your return when this dark world will finally and fully be light?
Oh God, would you do that? And it's in your good name that we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.